Chapter 4 of Nequa, or The Problem of the Ages. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Colleen McMahon. Nequa, or The Problem of the Ages, by Jack Adams. Chapter 4 A Singular Discovery Concluded. When all was ready for us to start on our return to the ship, Captain Gano said, As it is evident that I must turn doctor for a few days, I will place Jack Adams in command. That will leave just six of us to carry Captain Battelle to his cabin in the Ice King. For this purpose, we will divide into three reliefs. Houston and I will take the first, Pat and Mike the second, and Leif and Eric the third. This seems to be about the proper order as our Norwegian comrades carried the camp bed and medicine case all the way from the ship. "'But what if I object to the arrangement?' I asked. "'While I am willing,' I continued, "'to render any service in my power, I am not disposed to usurp your place as commander. You lead the way, and I will take my place at the handles of the stretcher. I enlisted to obey orders and take any place assigned me, but not to usurp the prerogatives of commander.' "'Then I have only to insist upon the terms of the contract as you understand it,' said the captain. "'You say that you enlisted to obey orders and take any place assigned you, "'and hence, as the captain of the Ice King, I order you to take the place of commander "'until I choose to resume the duties of that position. "'This is just as it should be. "'It was you who discovered Captain Battelle and then led us to the spot where we found him, "'and now you are appointed to lead us back to the ship by the most direct and practicable route. It is fortunate for us that you have spent so much of your time in the study of the topography of this country, if that is the proper word to apply to a dreary waste of ice. It is your first duty as commander to divide the distance to the ship into easy stages and see that each relief does its part of the work with all possible care for the comfort of our comrade. This is orders if you prefer to look at it in that light. I shall certainly take my place at the stretcher until, in your judgment, the second relief, Pat and Mike, ought to take hold. All right, I said. If I am to be commander-in-chief, whether I will or not, my first order is, follow me. We returned to the ship without any particular haste, frequently stopping to rest and to administer restoratives to the lips of our exhausted comrade. He was conveyed to his own quarters, and everything was, by the direction of Captain Gano, placed as nearly as possible in the same shape that he left it. He was still sleeping, and the captain assured us that he was doing well, and that if fever could be avoided, he would soon recover. He cautioned us to keep quiet and not ask him any questions, in case he should awake to consciousness. Captain Gano took his place at the side of the patient and from time to time touched his lips with water. After several hours, he partially aroused from his lethargy, and the captain administered a few spoonsful of broth, which were swallowed with avidity, and he again relapsed into a profound slumber. The captain now directed us to leave him entirely alone with the patient, but to hold ourselves in readiness to come at a moment's notice. He told us that all the patient now needed was profound silence, and a little nourishment whenever he was sufficiently aroused to partake of it. 
I want Mike, he said, to remain with me so as to be ready at any moment to execute my orders. Captain Battelle's restoration to health and vigor is of more importance to us now than any other consideration. I need Mike more than you do, and you must get along with cold lunches or do your own cooking. If I need any of you, Mike will let you know. Through Mike, we heard from the sick room from time to time, but the word was always the same, that the patient was doing well but still sleeping. Mike said that whenever Battelle showed signs of awaking, the captain would administer a spoonful of soup and he would drop off to sleep again without ever being fully aroused to consciousness. I was keenly alive to the fact that the death, or even the great disability of Captain Battelle, would be an irreparable loss to all of us. He was the only experienced Arctic navigator and explorer among us, and notwithstanding the cheering news from the sick room, I felt the most intense anxiety and remained in the library all the time so as to be ready to respond at once to any call from Captain Gano. After 48 hours of this anxious waiting had gone by, I was surprised at a personal call from Captain Gano, who greeted me in his usual cordial manner while his face fairly glowed with happiness. Without waiting for me to ply him with questions, he exclaimed, Well, Jack, the danger has passed. Captain Battelle has come to himself. He is still very weak, but there are no signs of fever. I admonished him not to talk until he had taken another nap, to which he consented on the condition that I would call you. He wants a conference at once. I am delighted to hear such good news, I exclaimed. But what did he say when he realized that he was in his own cabin, and you sitting by his side in the capacity of attendant? I have all of a woman's curiosity in regard to this matter, and insist upon your giving me all the particulars. Certainly, he replied, your interest is but natural, and shall be gratified as nearly as my memory will permit. In his treatment I sought to keep him asleep until he had gained strength for mental and physical effort. When he showed signs of waking up, I knew that it was from the gnawings of hunger, and would administer a small quantity of beef tea or some strengthening cordial, and then he would again relapse into a profound slumber. These spells of semi-consciousness became more and more frequent as he gained strength, and at last he opened his eyes and looked me full in the face. He closed them again, and seemed to reflect, and then looking at me, he said in his usual calm and deliberate manner, the last thing I remember is that I was trying to climb out of a channel that had been worn in the ice by a small stream of water. The bank only came up to my chin, but I was so weak that I could not succeed. After that, I seemed to have dream memories of delicious feasting and reclining on luxurious couches. I want you to tell me at once how I got here into my own quarters. I told him to be careful and not permit himself to become the least excited until he gained more strength but to content himself with the simple statement that Jack had noticed his approach from his observatory and that we went immediately to his relief. Now, said I, take this cup of beef tea and turn over and take another nap. He drank the tea and said, I will do as you say if you will agree to have Jack here when I wake up. It is a matter of the greatest importance that we have a conference immediately. We must be ready for the breakup, and I have much to tell you. So saying, he turned over and was soon sleeping soundly, and I am here to request you to come to his quarters. As he is not likely to sleep very long, we'd better go at once. Nature will soon be demanding exercise for mind and body as strenuously as she has demanded rest, 
Let us go. Some ten or fifteen minutes after we entered Captain Battelle's cabin, he awoke, and immediately got up and shook hands with me most cordially. He was naturally a man of few words, and never very demonstrative of either joy or grief, affection or anger, and usually preserved the most perfect equilibrium. But he was visibly affected when he said, My dear Jack, how fortunate it has been for Captain Gano and myself that you join this expedition. But for your watchful care, we would both have been dead, and in all probability the Ice King and the entire crew would have been lost. You have certainly been our guardian angel, and must ever hold the very highest place in our esteem and affection. I deserve no especial thanks for anything I have done, I responded. We are out here all alone, imprisoned in the ice, and our only hope of escape depends upon our standing together and helping each other, at all times and under all circumstances. The safety of every individual depends upon the safety of every other individual. Common sense and our common interests dictate that we should be a unit and realize that an injury to one is the concern of all. Our rule of action toward each other should be each for all and all for each. This is the only principle that a truly intelligent people anywhere would ever adopt. But here on this waste of floating ice, situated as we are, the most stupid ought to be able to comprehend the necessity for its application. So I repeat that I deserve no especial credit, for in looking out for the safety of others, I do the only thing that can be done for my own safety. This thing of caring for self, regardless of the interests of others, indicates a deficiency in intellectual development as much as it does hardness of heart, and a careful regard for the comfort and interest of others is indicative of intellectual development as much as it is of kindness of heart and love for our fellow creatures. Your philosophy, said Captain Battelle, is always right, but what is still better, you practice what you preach. Would to God that our misguided crew had understood the self-evident truths to which you so frequently give expression. They might have saved themselves from a terrible fate, and we would not have been short-handed, now that the ice is liable to go to pieces at any time. And as this matter is referred to, I suppose I'd better tell you at once what became of them, and why I was stranded on the ice in such a woebegone plight. And that is just what we are most anxious to hear, said Captain Gano but I have resolutely suppressed this anxiety because I feared fever and a possible fatal culmination as the result of your exposure and privations. We certainly do want to hear all about your expedition, your crew, and what you discovered, but do not relate it even now if it is going to excite you in the least. The fact is that you must be very careful for several days until your strength is fully restored. Do not be alarmed about me, said Battelle. It is not the first time that I have been stranded on the ice, and so I was to some extent prepared for this by past experience. Besides, you know I am much inclined to be a stoic and never permit my feelings to very seriously disturb my equilibrium. Then go ahead, said the captain. We want to hear what is uppermost in your mind, and we will listen. If we have any questions to ask or other matters to discuss, we will do that when you are through. Just speak when the spirit moves, said Battelle. It will not disturb me. As you doubtless remember, when we started on this last expedition, I was anxious to reach open water on the west and, if possible, launch the boats and circumnavigate this island of ice around toward the north as far as practicable 
so as to be able to return early in July, keeping a close watch of the movements and condition of the ice, and noting any signs of its breaking up. We found the traveling exceedingly difficult, and it was late in June before we reached open water, about 150 miles west of this. We found the ice sloughing off in great sections and floating away from the main body, demonstrating that the ice field was comparatively stationary so far as any westerly motion was concerned. By careful observation, I satisfied myself that it had grounded somewhere to the north, probably against an island, and was oscillating on that point. This made me more anxious than ever to launch our boats and make observations along the shore of the ice field which sloped off towards the northeast. We would therefore, during the exploration of its shoreline, be getting nearer to the ship, and I thought that we would be able to reach the obstruction against which it had grounded, which I found reasons for believing was not so very far north of the ship, and probably near the seam where the two original ice fields had come together. I reasoned that it was held against an island under the influence of northbound currents, and that the entire field might be expected to part along this line as soon as the ice became sufficiently rotten, which would give us a chance to keep on our way. If such a break came along the line of the seam, the ice field urged forward by the northerly currents would spread apart, and we would only have to follow the fissure as it formed to come either to land or out into an open polar sea. In either case, we would be safe for the coming winter. Our greatest danger will be from the falling of the ice when these bergs part company, and that, to a great extent, can be provided for. After careful investigation, we selected a spot where, by cutting a short road down to the water's edge, we could easily launch our boats. When I gave the word, the men sprang to their work with the greatest alacrity, and in good time we had an inclined way admirably cut out and arranged for launching the boats. We first unloaded everything of importance, as our stores were too precious to run any risk of loss or damage. Our boats were very soon riding the waves without any mishap, and the dogs and baggage placed on board. While all this was going on, I noticed frequent consultations among the men, but it seemed that it was because they were taking unusual care in their work. As soon as the last of our baggage was on board, the men took their places at the oars with a promptitude which I regarded as highly commendable. Then came the climax which I had least of all things expected. Tom Brown halted me at the plank and asked a word with me. He said that the men had determined to return to civilization, and that they would prefer I should go with them and retain the command. I was astounded at such an unreasonable as well as infamous proposition to abandon the ship, and I told him I did not believe that any body of sane men would contemplate such a suicidal undertaking. He replied very emphatically, Then, if you do not take my word for it, you may speak to the men. I have only spoken at their request. And so saying, he stepped quickly into the boat and drew the plank in after him. The men in the boats pushed out into the water and halted, as if to listen to what I had to say. I expostulated with them and explained how it would be utterly impossible for them to reach civilization in such frail boats, and that their provisions at the farthest would not last them more than four or five weeks, and then they must look starvation in the face. Brown, who acted as spokesman, replied, We have decided upon this thing deliberately, and we've closely calculated how long the provisions will last. Besides, we have plenty of ammunition and can certainly kill some game. 
and if the game is not abundant, we will kill the dogs and salt them down. I then tried them on another tack, and called their attention to the comrades whom we had left behind, and the immediate danger of their being lost, as well as ourselves, if we did not all stand together, and make good use of the observations we had made. They had the ship, and must take their own chances, said Brown. We know that there is no hope of the ship being able to get out of the ice, and we propose to save ourselves while we have an opportunity, and you had better go with us. Let Captain Gano and his shipmates take care of themselves. We cannot afford to take any chances in a case like this to save them. We are determined to look out for ourselves and let them do the same. I was so exasperated at this cold-blooded speech, revealing as it did such a depth of perfidy that I felt I could scarcely refrain from opening fire on them, and evidently they feared something of the kind, for as I turned to take hold of my gun, which was leaning against a block of ice, Brown gave the order, Ready! And instantly twenty rifles were aimed at me, and he said, We do not want to hurt you, but if you do not let your gun remain where it is until we're out of range, I will give the order to fire, and you will be filled with bullets, and you will not have even the poor satisfaction of dying with your friends at the ship, whom you seem to think are worth more to you than the entire crew. Have it your own way, I said. I certainly shall not stain my hands with your blood. Neither will I be responsible for the miserable fate that awaits you as the result of this infamous and rash undertaking. I've given you fair warning." I watched them until they were out of range, and then started on my return to the ship. All the food I had was the hardtack and bacon which I always carry in my haversack for emergencies. I had, however, my cartridge box with some ammunition, and I could kill game, but considering the long journey before me, and the slow progress I could make, the supply was indeed very small. The traveling was terrible, through water and slushy ice, often for miles at a stretch, I often had to make long detours around chasms and inaccessible elevations. When I slept, it was on a melting hummock of ice. I could have killed a large number of brants for food, but felt that it would be suicidal for me to waste my ammunition on such small game. Hence, I took my chances of finding something larger. I killed a goose occasionally, but was compelled to eat it raw, as I had no means of making a fire. But I did not fear starvation as long as my ammunition lasted. I had reason, however, to fear that the ice would break between me and the ship, and this came near to being the case when I first started on my return. When I was only a few hundred yards from the place where the boats were launched, a large strip of the shoreline broke away behind me. But I now think this rapid breaking up on the western border was due to a strong ocean current that did not extend very far east. However, I was very apprehensive that I might be sent adrift into an unknown ocean on a cake of ice and probably for this reason I exerted myself more than I should have done for the first few days. I got along tolerably well until my boots gave out, and then the ice-cold water seemed to paralyze my limbs, and my progress was correspondingly impeded. I often felt that I must drop in my tracks and never make another effort to move, but I was buoyed up by the thought that every step brought me nearer the ship. At last I could catch glimpses of this ice mountain, and the sight gave me renewed strength and courage. But my ammunition had given out, and I was famishing for food. I would often fall from sheer exhaustion, but would rally again and stagger on toward the goal of my hopes. When I came to the channel where you found me, I made an effort to spring across, but landed on the bottom. I repeatedly attempted to climb out on this side, but failed. 
You know the rest. I thank God, said Captain Gano, that Jack discovered your approach so that we could come to your assistance. The loss of so many of our crew is much to be regretted, but your loss would have been much worse, as your experience is indispensable to the safety of all. And now you must take some refreshments, and another nap, and I think you will be all right. I will take the refreshments, said Battelle, but we have no time to waste on sleep until work is commenced in earnest on the necessary preparations for our escape. How long have I been here? A little over forty-eight hours. Then we cannot afford to delay another two days before we commence work. Do you think the danger so pressing is that? asked the captain. I do, said Battelle emphatically. We are at the close of an Arctic summer, and we may look for storms and a breaking up at any time. The ice is very rotten, and the ocean currents, which are holding this ice field against some part of land or submarine mountain, may part it in twain at any time, and then we will be compelled to run for our lives. And what preparation do you advise? asked the captain. Tell us just what to do, and I will see that work is commenced at once, and pushed to completion as rapidly as our small force will permit. The first thing to be done, said Battelle, is to see that the boilers are free from all sediment, and that the furnaces are filled with the most combustible material we have, so the application of a match will produce a fierce heat and get up steam in the shortest time possible. If we had plenty of coal, I would get up steam at once and keep a moderate pressure until the ice had gone to pieces, or we were securely frozen up for the winter. But with our small supply of coal, we cannot afford to do this, and I am quite sure we cannot afford to wait for the break to commence or the coming of a storm. In either case, we will have a few minutes' warning. Of course, in such an emergency, we must use steam, as with our small force, the sails might be a positive detriment. Secondly, when the break comes, there will be a fall of ice from overhead that might prove fatal to those who remain on the upper deck. This must be provided for by the erection of substantial structures to protect those who direct the course of the ship. Thirdly, cut all the cables that hold the ship but four so that our diminutive force can cut us loose with one blow of their axes. This is all the work that our small force can possibly get through with before the breaking up of the ice, if that is to occur at all, this season. Then, said the captain, I will go at once and commence work, and if the necessity is as pressing as you think, you had better take all the rest you can, so that you can lend a hand when the emergency comes. I will rest and eat, said Battelle, but I will not be idle. To gain strength, I must take exercise. So Jack and I will make some observations along the seam in the ice which marks the old channel, as the break will in all probability be along that line. Captain Gano commenced the work of preparation immediately, and Battelle and myself engaged in the work that he had proposed. Our observations, made with the greatest care, seemed to confirm, more decidedly than ever, the theory that the ice field had lodged against some obstruction not very far north of us. Since we had reached longitude 180 degrees, we had been oscillating from one side to the other, but had made considerable progress toward the north, indicating that the ice was sloughing away in that direction, while the main body was held against some obstruction by the force of the currents. My own observations all the time had shown that we were oscillating, and these, compared with observations made by Battelle, 150 miles west, where this movement was much more apparent, gave us reliable data on which to make calculations. 
at the present time the sloughing off of the ice was evidently much more rapid on the west and hence our position was tending more than ever toward the east of the longitudinal line on which we lay from the observations we had made we calculated that the obstruction against which the ice field had lodged was about one degree due north of our present position we closely examined the seam in which we lay and found numerous indications of its weakness in many places where the walls of the closing channel had not come into close contact we found open water for considerable distances where the fish were making their appearance on the theory which captain battelle had evolved it did not seem difficult to prognosticate just where the break would first make its appearance and some of the contingencies which would confront us when that time came within a few days notwithstanding our very small force everything was ready for the emergency we anticipated and now we anxiously awaited the storm that would sunder the ice field and release us from our long imprisonment but the weather remained calm while it was steadily growing colder and we began to fear that we would be locked in the ice for another winter at last however a stiff breeze set in from the southwest and the barometer began to fall indicating an approaching storm immediately every man was at his post but hours passed away and the wind did not increase the order was given for every man to remain at his post and be ready to act as soon as the alarm should be sounded as no special duty had been assigned to me i retired to my quarters in the library to take a much-needed rest and was soon asleep end of chapter four recording by colleen mcmahon